Hello there. Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk Podcast, a center for human rights podcast series exploring a range of human rights issues through conversations with academics, practitioners, and activists. I am your host, Victoria Amici. Let's dive in. very much Advocate Pansi Takula for joining us for this edition, the Center for Human Rights podcast, where we are looking at the 10 years of the model law since its adoption in 2013. So we are very pleased to have you today to take us through the role that you have played on access to information on the continent as the former Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and also in your current role in South Africa. Welcome. Thank you very much and thanks for having me. Thank you. So briefly introduce yourself. My name is Pensit Lagula. I am currently the chairperson of the Information Regulator in South Africa, which is a regulatory body responsible for promoting the right of access to information. And it is also responsible for data protection. As you have already indicated, for 12 years from 2005, to 2017, I was a member of the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, and I was also its special rapporteur on freedom of expression and access to information. Thank you. So when you're looking at this right of access to information, maybe for those that still don't understand it, what is the right of access to information and why is it important? You know, there is a misconception out there that the right of access to information is a right exclusively for journalists. But if you look at it properly, it is a right that enables people to enjoy their rights, all their rights. I can give an example. Without information, for instance, no one can exercise their right to vote effectively. Without information, you cannot even in a country which requires every citizen to have an identity document. If you if you don't have information, you wouldn't even know how to go about applying for that identity document. So it's an it's an enabling right that facilitates the enjoyment of other rights. Thank you. So um, in your previous role, as you have mentioned, that you where the, the special rapporteur on, on freedom of expression. I want us, you to take us through some of the normative, you know, standards that the African Commission developed um, during your tenure, specifically focusing on, on access to information. Yes, when I joined the African Commission in 2005, the main date holder was simply responsible for freedom of expression without access to information. But upon realizing the importance of the right of access to information, we then um, proposed through a draft resolution to the African Commission to expand the mandate of the special rapporteur so as to include access to information. And that is really where the work started. Because from then, we then realized that there were very few countries on the African continent that had adopted access to information laws, and there were five at that 
time and the reason that was given by countries without access to information laws was that uh, they did not have you know a framework document that would assist them to develop their own national laws and that's where the idea of developing a model law on access to information began when we put together a group of African experts to develop the model law which was then adopted by the commission in 2013. After that we then realized that at the heart of the problems that African countries were experiencing insofar as uh, conducting free and fair elections was concerned was the fact that the election process in some country was very opaque and uh, that then gave rise to us beginning the work of adopting the guidelines on access to information and elections in Africa, which I can say without any fear of contradiction that it is probably the only standard setting document on this topic globally. And thereafter, then we also began the process of expanding the Declaration of Principles on Freedom of Expression, because at that time, the Declaration only dealt with freedom of expression, and we needed to bring it in line with other normative documents that we had um, developed. And that then led to the Declaration of Principles, including access to information, uh, so that's that's what happened. Those are the normative frameworks. Some of them during my tenure, others I started the development, but uh, my term came to an end and my successor continued to uh, complete the project. I'm glad that uh, you mentioned the guidelines on access to information and elections because we have used them as the Center for Human Rights to Access State Compliance and we'll be launching some of the reports um, that have been undertaken uh, using this instrument. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, one of the instruments is the model law on access to information for Africa. I just want you to expand uh, briefly. I know you have already um, spoken about it briefly, just, just to expand on uh, the rationale behind having this model law um, on access to information for Africa and what did you envisage? Yes, the rationale, as I've already indicated, was to assist uh, countries on the African continent to adopt their own access to information laws. And what was good about this, the model law is just a guidance note, if you want to call it that, because it is not binding. Uh, states parties could take whatever they thought was useful out of the model law to develop their own access to information laws. And um, I think this proved to be very, very useful. It was an intensive project, as you can imagine, because it started with a development or drafting of the document itself. And after the document was drafted, it had to go through consultation processes. Uh, we put the draft on the website of the commission. But in addition to that, we went to a number of countries on the continent to also have workshops with different stakeholders, both state organs and non-governmental organizations to get input. And thereafter, then the document was adopted by the commission. Uh, I think the access... The, the model on, on access to information is very important and it played an, a very important part on the African continent in increasing the number of countries with access to information. I mean, at the last count, I think uh, we had, and maybe you'd have updated information, but I think we have 
more than 25 countries on the continent that have adopted access to information laws. Yes, um, certainly we are seeing the benefit of having such a form of guidance for for the state parties. But just getting into uh, the substance of the model law itself, what are some of the uh, principles that it seeks to to advance? I mean, it talks about a, a number of principles, but I think I can highlight two of them, which I think for me are very important. The first one is... Um, the establishment of uh, oversight bodies responsible for regulating or promoting the right of access to information uh, and the requirements that have to be met for that oversight body to be able to perform its functions effectively. And that is the independence of um, the oversight bodies, because I think this is an issue that bedevils uh, most countries to ensure that they have independent oversight bodies that have an effective mandate to enforce the right of access to information and that those bodies have to be adequately funded for them to be able to execute their functions and they have to be insulated from interference in the sense that they shouldn't be located within the executive branch of government and they must report to to parliament and also the appointment procedure for oversight bodies. And I think the second important aspect of uh, the model law really uh, it's um, it advocating for or providing for proactive disclosure of information, which information has to be made available automatically without uh, anyone asking for that information. And the third one is the issue of exceptions. Uh, you know, exceptions to we we accept that there should be access. There should be exceptions to accessing information, uh, and also that uh, those exceptions. Um, being founded on the public interest override. And I think that's uh, one of the issues that are addressed by by the model law so eloquently. Because in most countries, you know, you find that you have laws that have got so many exceptions that those exceptions nullify the content of the law. So the model law tries to look at the exceptions and the importance of the public interest override in this area of the law. Yes, indeed, there are a number of uh, principles, but I think the ones that we have highlighted, uh, you know, proactive disclosure of information is something that we are still uh, grappling with um, as a continent and the model law advances uh, that is as uh, a cardinal principle and, of course, the oversight. So you've already stated that, um, you know, a number of countries now have um, access to information laws following the adoption of, of the model law. Um, besides the increase in the number of, of countries that have such kind of a, um, a law, what other uh, forms of impact can you think of that we can derive, that we can say probably after the model law and access to information, the information landscape might have changed in this particular manner? Yeah, I think what has what is now happening and which is positive is the establishment of the African uh, network of information commissioners because 
that network enables the members of the network to share information among themselves, to share best practice, but also to assist those countries that have not yet adopted access to information to do so. Uh, for instance, um, a couple of months ago in June, I think we had a meeting of um, the network in Nairobi. And at that meeting, we did not only invite members of the network, we also invited potential members. And these are countries that have adopted access to information laws, but are in the process of uh, appointing uh, oversight bodies an example in point is um is namibia for instance which came to to which attended the meeting in nairobi however i think what i need to stress is that the adoption of the law is just the beginning of the process because after the law has been adopted the difficult task of implementing the law becomes very important and whether countries have set up bodies that can effectively implement the law, that is where the challenge lies. Indeed, um, not only in Namibia, but we see that even those that have the oversight body in place, there are still a number of, of challenges that they are experiencing. And also the process of implementation also is, is another big challenge. Um, but what do you consider to be some of the main um, challenges besides, you know, we have already you know, taken us through uh, the challenge that Namibia is facing, but generally the major developments, um, including challenges um, in access to information on the continent. One of the main challenges is um, the effectiveness of the access to information law. And that is tied closely to issues of independence and issues of funding because you realize that in most countries and because of the economic climate that we are in, there are bodies that have been established, but they are not provided with adequate resources, both financial and human, for them to be able to, to exercise and perform their duties effectively. I think that is the main challenge. But also that um, the right of access to information is always viewed with suspicion, you know, by governments, because it is meant to um, put everything, to promote transparency. And so there, there is sort of a reluctance uh, in some countries to ensure that the oversight body is effective. Because once the oversight body is effective and it can perform its duties properly. It is able to assist with issues of, of transparency, unearthing, corruption, and so on. So those are some of the challenges uh, that we are seeing on the African continent, just empowering the oversight bodies uh, with resources for them to be able to execute their functions effectively. 
Thank you um, for that. I, I think, yeah, that's the funding part. It's one thing to establish a body and it's also a totally different thing to uh, give us the necessary tools for it to function, including um, the, the financial resources for it to effectively carry out um, its mandate. So um, that was the first part of our talk where we just wanted to get a sense of uh, the role that you played as the special rapporteur on freedom of expression and access to information for Africa. And we have taken us through that journey and also um, the challenges that we face as a continent briefly. Um, now we move on to the, the second part of our chat, which is on your current role now as the chairperson of the information regulator. Maybe it's there are some people who don't know what this institution is. Maybe if you can just take us through what the information regulator is and probably also what do you think has been its major contribution so far since it was established. The information regulator is a statutory body in South Africa and it is responsible for two rights, which is the promotion and protection of the right of access to information and the promotion and protection of the right to privacy as it relates to personal information. So that is what our mandate is. The regulator consists of five members. Uh, three members, including myself as the chairperson, are full-time members and two members are part-time members. We have our headquarters in uh, Johannesburg and the regulator was established in 2016. So like looking at the time it was established from that time up to now, what do you consider as some of the major contributions of the information regulator so far? I think the first one which is groundbreaking is that after uh, one of the NGOs in South Africa um, went to court to challenge the constitutionality of the promotion of Access to Information Act, PAIA, as we call it in South Africa. And they challenged that, they challenged PAIA on the basis of the fact that it does not al allow uh, for proactive disclosure of uh, private funding that is uh, received by political parties. You would recall that after the declaration of a PAIA unconstitutional by the Constitutional Court, uh, the court gave Parliament, I think, two years to amend PAIA. And that is where we came in. We made a submission in Parliament as the information regulator that the amendment of PAIA should include political parties in the definition of a private body. Because until such time, political parties were not included in the definition of a private body in Paia. And I think that has been a major, major development uh, in our country because 
One, the access to information legislation in South Africa is unique in the sense that it allows anyone to request information from a public body. Secondly, it allows anybody to request any information from a private body if that person, the requester, requires uh, that information to, for the purpose of exercising any right. So for me, the inclusion of political parties under the definition or in the definition of a private body has been a significant milestone in this country. And I think we are one of the few, if not the only, country that includes private bodies in the in this area of the law. And since then, what we have done this year, we have been or we have conducted a PAIA compliance uh, in all the political parties that are represented uh, in the National Assembly or in Parliament, so to speak. So we, we did uh, the assessment on compliance with uh, PAIA and we did that in all the political parties. The only one that we have not done so far is um, the EFF but we've covered all the political parties. So that is one success story. The other one, really, it's the, the investigations that are, we are doing. Some of them are quite significant. And I can quote an investigation that we did where a recording company was requesting uh, information from a company that is responsible for receiving royalties for musicians and uh, we came to the conclusion that that information should be released the importance of this is that you know that in this country and in other countries musicians they die as paupers because they don't receive their royalties and uh, at times the companies that receive royalties don't pass on those royalties to people who are entitled to them i don't want to go into details as far as this is concerned because that uh, our decision has been taken on review by the in information holder so this is really what we have done and i think another thing that i can mention which we mentioned when we were invited by unesco to a big meeting that they had on information on internet for uh, internet promoting internet for trust looking at issues of disinformation and misinformation and the impact of uh, misinformation disinformation and fake news on democracy the question was can this aspect can disinformation be be regulated and how can it be regulated and our contribution in that debate was that because we are fortunate in this country to have our access access to information law applying also to private bodies nothing prevents any person from requesting information from um, digital platforms on, for instance, their policies uh, on disinformation and and uh, misinformation and uh, fake news, including 
the tools um, that they use to deal with this, the research that they do, you know, any kind of information. And any person can ask this information from these digital platforms um, so as to enable them to exercise their right to vote. Because as you know, there is a big um, apprehension out there that with the coming elections, which I think more than 90 uh, globally, that are going to take place between 2023 and 2024, the biggest threat to those elections and to democracy as a whole is the issue of disinformation and misinformation and fake news. And the question is what can be done to hold these digital platforms accountable for publishing or for allowing this to be published on their platforms uh, and I think uh, access to information law here in South Africa can play a very significant role in this regard. Thank you for that. If, if we're looking at the access to information framework here in, in South Africa, what is your comment around compliance with um, international human rights law and, and standards? Uh, are there any gaps um, or any, you know, um, areas that can be used by other countries to say, you know, this is a good example that South Africa has. I mean, it's good, but you must remember that the South African law was adopted in 2000 and came into effect in 2002. And it's a law of its time, which does not take into consideration the technological advancements that have taken place because information is now stored digitally. So I think having run its course, I think the time has probably come for this law to be amended and to, you know, so that it can, it can um, consider the technological or take into consideration the technological development. And also the law is not too strong on proactive disclosure. It, it kind of falls a little bit short of the standards in the model law on access to information in Africa. But having said that, I think it is still one of the strongest laws or is still among the strongest access to information laws globally. And, and indeed, some countries don't even have an access to information law to, to speak about now in 2023, which is something very worrying. And um, I believe that the necessary work will be done to bring the framework up to up to speed with the uh, times. So if we're looking at the work of the information um, regulator in promoting the, the right of, ex, uh, of access to information, what are some of those advocacy strategies that we've used? The information regulator has taken a very conscious decision that it is going to take the regulator to the people. And we have developed, we do this through a strategy called Dikopano. Dikopano, it's a meetings, you know, meeting places. So we, we go to the remote areas in our country to conduct uh, these dikopanu. Uh, we go to the townships um, and that is a strategy because there's a, you know, there is a perception out there, as I said at the beginning, that the right of access to information is meant for journalists. So we go to the communities 
to explain to them how they can use the right of access to information to better their lives or to obtain information that will better their lives. And when we go to this Dikopan, when we organize Dikopan, we call the we invite the communities, but we normally also do that in conjunction with the municipality in that area so that uh, top officials in the municipality also attend. So we will then, you know, explain to the people how the right of access to information applies and how they can use it to derive information, particularly on service delivery from the municipalities. And people would then ask very pertinent questions uh, to the municipalities about a whole lot of things to say, there is this, there is this. Can you tell us when we come to the municipality to ask for this information, you don't give us. So it, it proves to be a very, it has proven to be a very successful concept, but at times may, or it makes municipal officials quite uncomfortable because the community will be asking very, very pertinent questions. I mean, the last Dikopano that we had, we held it in Mpumalanga where there were more than 500 people who attended and we they were asking uh, the municipality about the lack of service delivery so that's how we take the information regulator to the people okay so now let's uh delve into the the area of, of elections and your role there is the information regulator in promoting information disclosure practices during during elections yeah, as I've indicated to you that we have already started and that project is already finished, except that we still have to do EFF because we want to to mm. see how political parties comply with uh, PAIA. We are still analyzing the data that we, we have gathered. And once we have done that and compiled a report, I think we'll make it public. But in the area of elections... That is what uh, we are doing as the information regulator. And I'm not sure if you can comment on the on the previous elections and how the stakeholders are performing as far as uh, you know disclosing information uh, to the electorate as 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 envisaged at least in the guidelines of access to information and elections. Or how do you see them faring in that regard? I think the people, the organisation that comes tops as far as proactive disclosure of information is the the electoral commission which is the election management body here in south africa but i think there's still a lot of work that still needs to be done to ensure that everyone proactively discloses information but the ic i think according to that report which i read a long time ago i think it came out quite well in that in that report Yes, um, indeed. I think the IEC is is, is uh, taking the lead in proactive disclosure of information, and we hope that other stakeholders will do the same. Now, when you're looking at vulnerable and marginalized groups in the context of, of access to, to information, are there any special initiatives that you have undertaken as the information regulator to promote access to information for vulnerable and marginalized groups? Yeah, we have done. I mean, like I told you, one of the initiatives is this that we hold in the townships and in the rural areas. But uh, 
I think last year, if it it was last year or year before last, I can't recall when we celebrated IDUI, which is the International Day for Universal Access to Information. Our our theme for that year was access to information and uh, LGBTQI community um, in terms of just how access to information can enable the LGBTQI community to to exercise their their rights and to protect their rights. And one of the issues that came that looks very, very mundane is that I, which I was not even aware, that um, uh, the Home Affairs allows conscientious objectors. These are officials who marriage officers within the within home affairs and some of those marriage officers have um consciously objected to um officiating marriages of the lgbtqi community and one of the issues that was brought to our fore is that home affairs does not have a list of conscientious objectors so you may go to a home home affairs office to to get married, and on that day you'll then be told that uh, the people who are on duty on that day are all conscientious objectors, and they cannot therefore uh, officiate the marriage. You see, it's it's just those kinds of things that it's it's just lack of information and proactive disclosure of that information to the community. This year, we are looking at access to information and gender-based violence. Uh, and this also, I think, came out of uh, the inquiry that we did, even if it was an investigation under the Protection of Personal Information Act to recall that uh, the inquiry that we did there where the SAPS disclosed personal information of sexual uh, victims of sexual assault in uh, the Krukasdop area who were filming a music video. So out of that, and just the prevalence of gender-based violence in this country, we have decided to look at access to information and gender-based violence uh, for as a theme for I do I uh, of 2023 and this is where you see the you know the beauty of having a, a regulatory body being responsible for both privacy and access to information and how their work in these respective areas can can you know where there can be cross-pollination, if I can call it that, as far as access to information and privacy is concerned. Yes, indeed. And we've just come from a very painful phase, a very painful experience of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we saw the importance of access to information within a pandemic or in the in, in the context of such a disaster like that. And the information regulator found itself with a particular role to play in promoting access to information. Maybe if you can take us through that. Yeah, it's two things, in fact. What what we 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 saw was that a government, if it has intention to do so, they can disclose information proactively. 
which happened in the case of COVID. But the, the issue that we are concerned with is the, was the centralization of accessing information because there was a fear of the spread of fake news, uh, disinformation and misinformation insofar as COVID was concerned and in particular as it related to vaccination. So that is one thing that we we talked about that uh, the government must ensure that they allow free flow of information as far as COVID is concerned. But we had to balance that with um, the our popia mandate mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that the information that was collected uh, in the management and containment of COVID, that personal information had to be dealt with in accordance with the protection of protection of personal information act to ensure that at the end of the national state of disaster mm-hmm. that personal information is deleted or de-identified and this once again shows you how these two rights balance each other while you are looking at one right on the side you have to balance it against the other so that's the work that we did as far as COVID is concerned. Yes. So um, another important element of, of access to information is, is uh, whistleblower protection. And this finds expression, especially in the uh, Declaration of Principles on, on Freedom of Expression and Access to Information in Africa. I, I just wanted to get a sense of um, uh, what are your views around, you know, the state of whistleblower protection in South Africa? I know it's a very big thing. And uh, has the information regulator started doing work around whistleblower protection? Oh, not at all. It's very important uh, because of the levels of corruption in this country. And if my memory serves me well, uh, because I have I deal with so many, th- I don't think we have a whistleblower protection act. I think there was a bill. Am I correct? There is a framework in place, but there is no act, isn't it? There's no legislation. No. There is no. Leg- I think that is where the the problem is. And I mean, with the, the corruption that has happened during the COVID-19 procurement of uh, protective these PPEs, we saw even uh, the, the woman who, Babita, and her soul rest in peace, that she was she was murdered, actually. And um, lots of people, we read about that in the media of whistleblowers, you know, have been intimidated, have been some killed and, and so on, harassed. And I think South Africa needs to move with speed towards an adoption of a whistleblower legislation. But considering your question, no, it's not anything that we have done. We have not looked at that as the information regulator. Yes, there is the Protected Disclosures Act of 2000, and it was um, amended as of 2017. But I don't think much work has been around, has been done around this, this particular legislation. But even then, it's limited. Yeah, its application because it deals with a disclosure of protected information within the workplace. Mm. You yeah, know? that is limitation. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, the, the the scope is really a challenge, and, and like you are seeing, the the rise of uh, whistleblowers 
it's really um, a dire situation and we see some of them even being killed and also their families also under under threat. You have already touched on the issue of uh, the information disorder that we are experiencing now, which also manifests, you know, in the form of disinformation, misinformation and, and, and other forms. And uh, this becomes particularly important, especially in the context of elections. That's where it becomes quite serious. And um, I, I know that you have already at some point started mentioning something along those lines. Maybe if you can expand more on, on that. You see, it's two things can happen. If you look at Paia, it says that any public body can request information from a private body when that public body wants to use that information to protect any right. It means that in theory, or even in practice, nothing prevents the IEC from using PAIA to request information from digital platforms on how they address the issues of disinformation, misinformation, and fake news for the IEC to be able to exercise its responsibility of promoting and protecting the right to vote. That's on one instance. I don't know whether the IEC would be minded to do that. It's something that you can ask them. Secondly, nothing prevents any person, an NGO, for instance, in this country, the Center for Human Rights, anyone, from asking that information, requesting that information from digital platforms. Uh, we can do that. We can only come into the picture as the information regulator. If someone has asked for that kind of information from the digital platforms and these digital platforms have refused to disclose that information, then the requester for that information can then lodge a, a complaint with the information regulator. That is how we can come into it into the picture as far as this is concerned. We can't do it on mm -hmm. own initiative because we don't have the mandate to conduct own initiative investigations as far as access to information is concerned because of the scheme of the act. The scheme of the act is that someone must request information. If that information is, request, is, is uh, denied, then the information requester can come to the information regulator to lodge a, lodge a complaint. So that's how I think misinformation and disinformation can be dealt with within the South African access to information legislative framework. And then on the collaboration with like-minded entities or organizations or institutions, I know there is a network of, of information commissioners. Maybe if you can elaborate on the nature and extent of, of the collaboration and what have been the benefits? I mean, ANIC, as we call it, the African Network of Information Commissioners, it's, it's a fairly new organization. It was established, or the idea of establishing it was was mooted in Johannesburg in, tw in 2019 when the information regulator hosted the International Conference of Information Commissioners. But as you know, after that, we then had COVID and there was a lull. And it is only last year, I think, where, late last year, where we began in earnest the establishment of ANIC and we had to start afresh with the adoption of, of a constitution, election office bearers, 
and so on. And we then adopted, a, we have adopted a strategic plan and an operational plan. And we are at, at a point where we are now beginning the implementation of some of the um, items in the operational plan, like what we said we're going to do for this particular 2023-2024 financial year is to look at issues of training, uh, also increasing the number of countries with ATI laws and increasing the number of ANIC members because at the moment we have 15 only out of the 20-something countries that have adopted ATI laws. So that's really what we we intend to do to to have um, exchange programs to look at standard setting documents that ANIC can can develop and so on. So it's still early days, but I think that with time ANIC will have a very important role to play on the African continent, and I think it can also be a powerful powerful if it works in conjunction with the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Indeed. As we wrap up, maybe just take us through, you know, having assessed performance or the experience of the information regulator since its establishment. What are some of the challenges that the regulator has faced and what do you think is the kind of support that uh, the institution requires to effectively carry out its mandate, both on access to information and protection of personal information? I think one big problem is resources, both human and financial, because unlike other countries, the regulator is responsible for both access to information and the protection of personal information. So we need a lot of resources. And we have seen with ATI, the two investigations that we did um, in fact, not to, we have done a lot of investigation, but out of those two high profile ones have decided, the information holders have decided mm. to challenge our decision in court. So I think that's where we're going to, to have problems because we, we, we may find ourselves having to spend lots and lots of money and resources on defending court cases mm. but what also bothers a little bit as a challenge we are saying why especially political parties in this country and other bodies private bodies they they prefer to go directly to court if they want access to information than coming through the regulator which would be a free process and maybe it's because they think that coming to the regulator that will end up in any case in court uh, because the information holder will challenge the decision of the information regulator. So I think resources are a big problem, especially because when we then assess our work, we are overwhelmed with complaints relating to the protection of personal information. I mean, we have the complaints that we have, there are four times higher than the number is four times higher than the access to information complaints. So we need a lot of money and the, the protection of personal information act investigations and assessments are very complex, particularly if the investigation relates 
to a security compromise or where there has been a, an organization has been hacked or a data breach, as it's called. To investigate that requires technical expertise of forensic investigators in, in the IT space. So going forward, it's going to be difficult for us, particularly if you consider the number of data breaches in this country. So we are an organization which is in need of a lot of human and financial resources. Thank you so much, Advocate Pansi Tlakula, who have taken us through a very um, important and eye-opening um, discussion on access to information, not just on the continent, but also um, you have reflected on the South African context through the work that you are doing as the chairperson of the information regulator. Any parting words as we close this session? The parting word that I have, particularly for South Africans, but also for other countries on the African continent, is that people should take the right of access to information seriously and also consider how they can use this right to promote transparency and also to enable them to receive or get information about service delivery because we are of the view that if communities use access to information to get information from the government on service delivery, this may have some impact insofar as service delivery uh, protests are concerned. And that's my parting note. Indeed, access to information is a very important right which has been identified as one of the cornerstones of democracy and also, like you have indicated, it's a facilitative right. We hope that as we do more and more advocacy work around this right, the situation on the access to information landscape will change on the continent and also in South Africa. Thank you once again for your time. And thank you very much for, for having me. Thank you. You have just listened to the Africa Rights Talk podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channels, social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening.